This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, February 5th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. There is a problem in scientific publications. According to Stuart Ritchie, author of the book Science Fictions, there are at least four. Fraud, bias, negligence, and hype. We talked about how science publishing has gone wrong and what scientists themselves might be able to do about it. This ought to be a lot simpler. That is, you have an idea, a hypothesis, you test it with experimentation, uh, you scrupulously detail your results, and then you publish them. And then other scientists say, hey, I should try to mimic what this guy did and discover whether or not this is a, this is a real result. Uh, so why doesn't it ha- seem to happen that way? Or, or what are the, the big problems in scientific research that you've identified? Well, I uh, I talk about four classes of problems, and I guess we can we can talk about them, uh, uh, whichever ones you're most interested in. But uh, I talk about fraud and bias and negligence and hype, and I think all of these four problems uh, come in at some stage in the scientific publication process to distort the results and make it so that the scientific literature that we read, we when we see it published in the journals and so on, is very different from what actually went on when the scientists were doing their 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 work it's like um it's like looking through the historical record and you know historians are aware that when they look at the historical record it's full of biases and you know you have certain people writing against the, the you know the, the the current rulers or or for the current rulers or whatever it is distorting things but the scientific literature is not meant to be like that the scientific literature is meant to be uh you know this kind of disinterested uh record of what of what occurred and it really isn't. And all of these problems kind of kind of come in um, at some stage along the way. So fraud seems pretty obvious. That is people uh, either making up results or making up data that uh, contributes to results. But a, a lot of what you point to is, I guess, more subtle or more insidious. Yeah, I think there's a spectrum, right, from at the far end, people who have literally opened up an Excel spreadsheet and typed in the numbers that they want for their experiment. So that's been that's happened every so often. Um, uh, uh, you know, I tell the story of the Dutch social psychologist, Diederik Stapel, who did this, literally just made the results up, gave them to all his PhD students, and uh, they all wrote their PhD dissertations based on uh, completely fraudulent results. And then there's people who Photoshop the pictures, like microscope pictures and so on. But as you say, that's a kind of, that's a minority. It's a, I think it's probably more frequent than we would like to think, but it's a minority. And as you say, it kind of blends into the uh, the everyday practices that that completely non fraudulent and well intentioned scientists uh, get into, and I think that's what the the really scary thing is that um, we can fool ourselves into uh, coming up with with uh, you know results that won't replicate, results that are low quality, that are biased in various ways, um, and and we think, well, I'm I'm nothing like that fraudster who made up his results, but you're kind of on the same spectrum and putting the finger on the scale when it comes to statistics, you know, running lots of analyses over and over again until you get the one you want, you can kind of convince yourself that this is okay. But, uh, but, but actually, we, we, we know uh, from, you know, having now done you know, many, many years of analysis of this kind of problem, um, that, that this can really increase the number of false results in the scientific literature. So how, are, how is experimentation and how uh, is research biased? There's very many different ways. So um, at the level of publication, you can have bias coming in because scientists are 
more interested in publishing positive results than they are null or negative or ambiguous results. So um, you see this very clearly in you know trials of different medicines. You, you have a publication bias where trials that show that the medicine works are much more likely to end up published in the journals than uh, ones where you know maybe the result was kind of positive but not you know super convincing, or ones where it just flatly showed that it, that it doesn't work. The uh, you know scientists know that journals are looking for exciting positive results that they know people will cite and go on to use in future and so on. And so they kind of internalize, well, I'm not even going to try and send this this article you know, that, that reports the trial. I'm not even going to send this into a scientific journal because it has a very low likelihood of getting published in the first place. So um, you have this kind of uh, uh, this publication bias at one level. Then there's publication bias almost on the level of single papers, which is that when you're writing up your article to be published, um, you may only write up the results that are most, uh, uh, you know, uh, friendly to your particular theory, your particular perspective, or you know, that, that show that your hypothesis is right. So you can have all these statistical biases where, you know, as I said, you run lots and lots of um, different analyses, just publish the ones that are positive. You um, you run analyses in certain ways that uh, that make it more likely that you will find a, a result uh, that, that that fits with your previous view. So that's you know that's probably more more common because um, one of the main things that we learn once you get into science is that scientists love to publish papers. So publication bias is not great for that because um, you know if you if you hide away your your null or you know negative results, you're not going to get that line on your CV. You're not going to get that really cool uh, publication with your name on it in the you know American Journal of whatever. So um, it's much better to publish the paper, but maybe be a little bit more a little bit biased about the actual way that the results work so that's 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 one other level of bias then there are other biases of course um that are more kind of i guess psychological on the part of the the uh, psychological or sociological on the part of the scientists so you have these uh theories that people really want to be true and uh are kind of irrational in the way that they deal with uh um you know challenges to those theories you have um uh, political reasons that certain um theories are favored over others and these aren't rational scientific reasons based on the evidence they're just they're they're kind of you know political things obviously it's very hard to tell exactly when these things are operating because you would need to look into the heads of the people that are publishing this stuff but um there are different levels of bias all the all the way through and you know you you see people who are constantly meant to be challenging bias and being critical of scientific results um uh, who need to also to be criticized and are biased in the opposite direction so um you know there are some sociologists of science who talk about how all these biases can kind of try and cancel each other out. It's actually good if we've got lots and lots of different, you know, biases in opposite directions in science. And I think that's great. It's just that um, a lot of them are not acknowledged at all. And a lot of them um, distort not just the overall ideological implications of what each scientific finding says, but they distort the basic numbers in the papers. And we just never see a lot of stuff that doesn't work. And so we just can't, in a, in a, in a situation like this, we just can't trust fundamentally um what we see in literature um and uh, and that and that really you know has terrible implications across all sorts of fields so uh you've mentioned journals several times mm. uh what's the role that journals play and what is the way that journals ought to be correcting how they either choose publications or what kinds of 
uh, caveats they might require of papers when they go to publication. Like, look, we ran this many hundreds of analyses. Here are the four that we are presenting, mm. but but perhaps be more upfront about the actual substance of of the experiment experiment and not just the substance of what they like in the results. Yeah, uh, uh, that sounds like a great idea to me. I mean, to, to go back to the first part of the question, the the role of the journals is to really uh, be the the quality control, right? Is is people submit people submit articles to, to to scientific journals? They're sent out for peer review. The journals are the people that are you know they're the where the peer review kicks in. Um, the editor of the journal will ask a couple of other scientists to to look through the paper and and and, and check whether it's it's uh, you know high quality enough. The problem is it's not often reviews are not just based on the quality; they're based on. Um, other things. Uh, they're based on how exciting people think the results are, for instance, or how, uh, again, you know, politically uh, acceptable they are, or whatever, whatever it is. There are lots of different biases that could come in depending on depending on the field. Um, and so, peer review, although it's, you know, we talk about you hear in the news, you know, a peer reviewed study has said this. Well, actually, there's several peer reviewed studies that say this, and it sounds like it's this like super quality control thing. But pretty much every paper I talk about in 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 the book has been peer reviewed, and yet they're all flawed in all sorts of in all sorts of ways. Um, uh, and so peer review is not, I think, the kind of bulwark against uh, uh, fraud and bias and all the other things that, um, that it that it should be, that it must be if we if we if we want uh, uh, it to you know to have its rule that it's supposed to have. And um, and so journals uh, journal editors are also. Um, you know, subject to these kind of biases. They want to see papers that are cool and exciting, that are, you know, that are going to be the next big thing and give their journal lots of attention. The publishers of the journals have this kind of perverse incentive where they want lots of citations. They want their journal's impact factor, which is the kind of average number of citations that the journal gets. They want it to be really high. And that's, you know, raising a, a fairly um, arbitrary number. It's not raising the quality of stuff in the journals. And so, you know, as you were saying, um, there are things journals could do to raise the quality of the articles that they publish. Um, one of them is not is is to ask people not to send in completed experiments, but to send in their plans for experiments, right, and register those plans. So um, this is called a, a registered report, and there's a few hundred journals now that have signed up to this scheme. So the idea is, you write your you know your introductory section and then your method the plan of your method whatever you're going whatever experiment or study you're going to do and then that gets peer reviewed at that stage so it's instead of having you know the final the final product with all the results peer reviewed you get the 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 the, the method peer reviewed and the peer reviewers can say no i don't think this is the right way to answer this question no you've got this wrong and you can have all that huge argument happening before any data has ever been collected or looked at or touched by anyone then uh, if everyone agrees the journal uh, says we will publish this no matter what, right? We will publish this whether it's positive, negative, because we don't know what the outcome is going to be. But we will publish this article, however it turns out, as long as you do what you said you would do when you registered your analysis with us. Then you go off and collect the data, you do all that stuff, and then the peer reviewers are then brought back in to check whether you did what you said you would do, and the article gets published. And that kills a lot of these biases, stone dead, right? It kills it kills publication bias because the journals agreed to publish it either way. It kills some of these statistical biases because it means that um, you've kind of agreed your analysis beforehand and you can't just kind of flexibly adjust the analysis like people do as they as they go through. And and several other problems are dealt with as well. So this is one way I think of 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 really um reforming the way that scientific publication works to make it more uh 
reliable. Yes. Yeah. My image, and this is probably false, of journal editors is that they're just waiting for papers to come in. And maybe that's not, not the way they function. Maybe they're actively suggesting or pitching to people or making calls for papers and say, hey, we would like papers in this area. But what you're suggesting is that they play a more direct editorial role uh, like a magazine editor might. Yeah, um, that, that's that's one possible idea that you basically are, are, are the, the editors and the peer reviewers are, are, are involved in saying, well, we think this is a good test of the hypothesis or a bad test of the hypothesis rather than, and, you know, if you just think about how fundamentally different that is right now in the current system, what the editors and peer reviewers are saying is, you know, we think this is a good paper um, and, and we'll make the decision on whether to whether to publish it at the final, you know, uh, you know, now it's all finished. But in this in this new idea, they would be saying, well, we're going to try and craft with you a good test of this hypothesis that we as a consensus all agree on. And, and I think that's a really fundamental change. I mean, another another way of thinking about journals is is that they don't just um, they don't actually solicit peer reviews, um, that they don't make the decision on whether to publish anything. Right. This is another kind of um, kind of revolutionary idea for how journals might might look in future is that they don't make the decision on whether to publish. They act like like more like a kind of a press agency or something that they would go out and uh, um, they would say, well, we're, we're going we're gonna to publish your paper. We're going to look at your paper because we think it's really good. It's already been published. You would maybe have a, a kind of a peer review organization that would uh, you would submit your papers to, and it would be a kind of independent group that, that would solicit peer reviewers and maybe pay them because, by the way, peer reviewers are just doing this out of the, out of the goodness of their hearts at the moment. And uh, it's not a great uh, scenario altogether. They're, they're busy scientists as well. They've got other things on. So yeah, so maybe you'd have this independent organization that would pay the peer reviewers to do it, and then you would get a rating from this organization, and the journals would come along and say, look, we're kind of an overlay here. We want to publicize the best science that's been done, but we're not making the decision on whether that science is published or not. That science is is going to get published uh, either way. That science is, you know, it's, it's already out there in the world, but we're going to say, we give this paper our stamp of approval. So that's another way of thinking about it, another way of changing the way that journals work right now, which is at the moment, they're... They both publicize it and and do all the dissemination, and they make the decision on whether it should be published in the first place. All right. So two other categories that you list here, negligence and hype. Mm. Um, but it, negligence, uh, I'm going to assume, because I didn't get to this part of the book, uh, negligence, I assume, is all the other scientists, people who are peer reviewers, people who uh, ought to be looking skeptically at uh, almost every piece of research that crosses their desk. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the kind of um, sociological norms of science that I talk about. So Robert Merton in the kind of mid twentieth century, the sociologist, uh, you know, described all these norms of science, and one of them is organized skepticism, which is that you're constantly checking on yourself and other people, and and you know that's what science should be all about, as you as you say. Um, the problem is that um, because of the way that peer review works and the way that other you know scientific systems work. A huge number of errors, unforced errors, slip through all the time. So uh, I talk about mistakes in in uh, all sorts of different fields. Uh, one that comes to mind is in cell biology, where there are all these um, problems of contamination uh, with this, uh, stem cell lines and so on. So you can be doing an experiment on what you think are monkey cells, but they're actually human cells or, or vice versa. And this happens an enormous amount, and it's actually been talked about since the 1950s. And yet, 
scientists don't seem to be that bothered about doing about doing anything about it, and it can it can really affect the the quality of the of the research that's being done. Um, cell line misidentification, it's it's called, and it's it's a known issue, but it's just kind of sitting there. It's just there. Um, and I also talk about just just basic statistical errors in papers, typos, copy and paste errors, which are way more common than you'd think. Um, in 2016 or so, some psychologists designed an algorithm called uh, StatCheck um, that kind of just automatically went through uh, scientific papers and checked um, some of it. The, so there are some statistics where, you know, if you've got two numbers, then the third one kind of has to be a, a certain number. Otherwise, something's gone wrong. So it's like having if you know the two sides of the triangle, you can work out the hypotenuse, right? It's, it's exactly the same kind of thing. And they found that some journals in psychology research, my, my own my own field, um, up to 50% or so of, of, of articles had at least one you know, statistical um, inconsistency, like a number that couldn't possibly be true. And I think something like uh, up to 15 or 16% of them were, were cases where if you flip, you would you would flip around the entire um, paper if you corrected it. The result of the paper just wouldn't be true anymore. And it's it, it, it's really bizarre to me that something which we you know science which we think is this you know ultra meticulous careful uh, process is actually riddled with all these very very basic mistakes. How reticent are journals uh, to pull research? to pull articles and say th this no longer is representative of the work that we try to do it depends uh i think the some some journals are are perhaps a bit over excited to to retract articles i think especially when there's kind of large-scale political pressure to to retract stuff um we've seen a few examples of that recently but it, it, there are some cases where journals can last sometimes for years after being told that um you know there's a fraudulent there's someone who's actually making up the data fraudulently making up data and it's actually you know having real effects on people's lives um uh they're publishing in your journal are you going to do anything about it i mean the, the classic case of this is um is the andrew wakefield case the autism and mmr uh fraud which turned out not to be just a mistake or anything it was actually a fraudulent paper that he he, he fabricated stuff about the medical history of the kids in the in the paper um and that had huge effects on people's vaccine beliefs and and, and so on and obviously you know, we're talking about vaccines all the time now, and you know the, the kind of legacy of that vaccine doubt is still around. I think, um, and that took I think twelve years before that paper was retracted from the from the literature, even though it had been known for many years before that that something very was very very wrong with this with this paper. It wasn't just a, you know, I don't think um, necessarily. I think there's an interesting discussion to be had, but I don't think papers should be retracted just for making honest, um, just for, just for being wrong, right? If you've made a mistake, like in the actual analysis, then probably the paper needs to be either corrected or retracted. Um, but this wasn't an example of that. This was an example of outright fraud. And uh, and yeah, it's sat it sat in the scientific literature, you know, being cited, being read, uh, being taken seriously in one of the top medical journals um, for over a decade. These categories that you lay out here: fraud, bias, negligence, and hype. What are the roles of, in turn, governments and industry in trying to shape research to fit their narratives uh, ab about how the world works. Yeah, well, universities, I think, put a lot of pressures on scientists to, uh, to, to A, just produce stuff, just produce papers all the time, um, uh, constantly be productive, constantly uh, publish in high-impact journals and, 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 and so on. Um, and I think they could change the way that they 
hire scientists, promote scientists. Uh, in the US, you guys have you know tenure committees and so on. It's a bit different over here, but um, but you know these are uh, these are committees where, to a great extent, sadly, people's you know the the, the excitement of the stuff they publish rather than the robustness of what they publish is uh, is 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 what's taken into account um, when you you know when you give someone tenure. And I think there are there are you know. Um, ways uh, of, of of assessing people's scientific contributions that don't just involve just just looking at the impact factor of the journal that they published in. I mean, uh, uh, you could maybe like read the paper and see if it's any good or not. And so there are there are like there are there are ways universities could change that. But I think universities um, really are, are 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 not set up currently to reward you know robust research, but they are um, set up to reward breakthrough, exciting, groundbreaking research. Uh, Stuff that can end up in a press release. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. And and and, and by the way, I, you know, I, I talk a bit about press releases in the book. Um, a lot of people assume that journalists come along and like read a scientific paper and misinterpret it and blow it out of proportion and so on. But in the book, I talk about how scientists themselves are responsible for a lot of the hyped up claims in press releases. Scientists themselves are often writing the whole press release. And um, you know, if you thought the peer reviewed journals were bad for you know, mistaken statements and hyped up statements and so on. The press releases aren't reviewed by anyone. Like they're just sent out into the world. And you can see there's been several studies of this. You can see how um, incorrect statements and press releases kind of percolate out into the media. You know, so press releases that don't hype stuff up very rarely get hyped up in the media, but, but vice versa. Press, press releases that have statements like, um, you know, you often get press releases that, um, draw a, a causal conclusion from correlational data, for instance, or you get a press release that draws a conclusion about humans from a, a study done in mice, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you see that all the time. Um, and it turns out that if press releases have that stuff in it, it you know, it, journalists, I'm not blaming journalists because they look they, they look at the press release and they go, well, a university scientist wrote this, so uh, it's, it's presumably reliable. And that's just not the case, unfortunately. I'm not saying that journalists don't also overhype research sometimes, which clearly they do. But I think scientists are a lot more responsible than we would like to think. All right. So governments, uh, in many cases, governments are setting agendas in in terms of funding uh, certain kinds of research, uh, where maybe another another area might be more productive, or they're funding research that, uh, based on who's running whatever agency is doing the funding. Perhaps the the research needs to at least make a nod to a particular kind of conclusion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there are definitely cases like that. I think you see um, you see examples in you know fields that are kind of closer to to to, to my own. About you know, I talk about the the uh, Alzheimer's research area where loads of funding, whether it's federal funding um, in the U.S. or or you know UK government funding here. Um, goes to research on a particular hypothesis of Alzheimer's disease, the amyloid hypothesis, and it's kind of become a a kind of received wisdom thing. And, and critics tend to get a hard time. Critics tend to, critics who are pointing out, you know, we haven't developed any drugs for Alzheimer's. You know, the the, the the therapies that are supposedly based on this theory are just not working. So something's going wrong with the way we're we're, we're testing this. Um, there may well be other things that matter, or it could be that we just haven't properly tested the amyloid theory. But something's gone wrong. Um, there's there's a, an amazing story by uh, uh, Sharon Begley in um, I think Undark magazine or, or uh, some online online magazine. Um, she sadly died just a few days ago, actually. Um, but she was a great science journalist, and she wrote this amazing piece about how you know the kind of um, uh, renegade people who are saying 
I think maybe uh, the amyloid hypothesis uh, is questionable in some way. We're getting real, like, serious pushback from what she called a cabal of researchers in, in, in you know in this area, and and they can often capture a huge amount of funding because they can be the um, they can be the most senior researchers in a field, um, or, or or you know, and I think I think that sort of thing happens across across a lot of different fields, and, and governments, you know. The funding agencies that they that they run and that they pay for are run by scientists who have their own agendas and 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 so on. You you know you do see occasionally you know a big change comes along when someone someone takes over an agency and and says well actually you know so in recent years in the UK we've started changing our government uh, funding uh, um, the way that it, the way that people apply for it and you no longer have to write a, a section that says here's the, the impacts of my research and here's how amazingly cool it's going to be when oh, this is published. And now you have to write a section saying, I'm going to share my data with people and I'm going to try and replicate this experiment and I'm going to try and make it robust and so on. So governments can have the, you know, can usually very slowly, but they can um, uh, change the way that research is, um, is, is a, you know, grant funding is applied for and that can really have a big effect. And lastly, of course, industry. Famously, at Harvard University, uh, decades ago, uh, researchers there were told, uh, presumably paid by industry, that uh, sugar is not the big problem. Fat is the big problem. You need to say that fat is the big problem. I'm, I'm oversimplifying, of course, but that does happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there is some evidence. It, it, it's not as strong as you would, uh, I think, first predict, but there is some evidence that uh, drug trials that are paid for by industry do tend to find uh, positive results more often than uh, drug trials that are run by you know not-for-profit organizations. Um, there's that kind of there's that kind of you know bias towards a particular you know product uh, uh, and so on. But I think if you look at um, t- you know take a look at what what's happened with COVID nineteen, um, university research. Now, this is a very broad brush picture, but university research where the stakes are relatively low, academics are just publishing stuff in journals, right? Academics have published a load of really crap papers during the COVID pandemic. But if you look at some of the industry research, look at Pfizer, look at Moderna. uh, These are real serious, uh, amazing, incredible Nobel Prize worthy breakthroughs in in, in science run entirely by industry. No no, uh, academic stuff involved. Now, of course, they're based on academic research that's been going on for a while. So you can't just say they came out of nowhere. Is part of that 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 the the eyes of the world were focused on Moderna and Pfizer and these other companies trying to develop vaccines? But also the eyes of the world were focused on Harvard when it came out with with, uh, two papers in the summer last year that said hydroxychloroquine is actually deadly. It actually increases the death rate. Um, Now, of course, the original papers on hydroxychloroquine were really bad as well, run by French academics. They were terrible. And then, of course, and then you'd think that the papers by Harvard uh, or at least um, Brigham and Women's Hospital, right? So like the Harvard Medical School would be really high quality, but they were based on uh, a data set, which you know, I don't think it's been officially shown to be fraudulent yet. I don't know if the investigation has been completed, but there was something seriously wrong with that data. And you know, these Harvard academics had to retract um, two articles, one from the Lancet and one from the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, uh, you know, last year in the middle of the pandemic on drugs for hydroxychloroquine. Um, and so, you know, you talk about the eyes of the world. The eyes of the world are on are on that stuff. The, the people stop doing randomized controlled trials on the basis of these papers that appeared. Uh, people, you know, doctors change their treatments and so on. And it turned out that the data was just, you know, something very far wrong with it, either made up or just 
corrupted in some way. Just uh, they had to take those papers really quite, you know, uh, I think within two weeks, they had to take those papers down out of the literature when people started saying, wait a minute, you've said that um, this number of people have died in Australia in your data set, but the total number of people who've died in Australia is nowhere near that number. And so, so it's like, it's just like, just made up research. So um, I think the people say negative things about the profit incentive in, in you know the pharmaceutical industry or whatever and i think clearly it can have it can have negative effects as i've just mentioned but um the higher stakes of that the fact that you know you, you your your company will 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 lose out dramatically if you if you don't produce a product that's useful um i think that can can really make people tighten tighten the bolts a little bit um compared to as i say in in academic research where the stakes might be high for the users of the research but the stakes aren't that high for you because, you know, if your paper's wrong, you know, just publish another paper at some point in the future. You'll still have your job. For individual researchers who are deep into some scientific endeavor, what can they themselves do to make their own, to avoid uh, these biases, to make clear, uh, to ju- just be as transparent as possible, uh, even with themselves mm. about how they do their work? Well, I think the the kind of open science movement, um, which is this, you know, it's been going for a long time, the idea of open science. But uh, uh, I think in recent years, particularly because of technological advances in the way that we can share things online, mainly, um, I think it's had a real boost recently. I think scientists can basically sign up, you know, mentally sign up to the 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 the, um, the principles of open science, which are things like wherever possible, you will share your data, you'll put your data online. So um, that's generally quite a good uh, uh, incentive not to fraudulently make up your data because a, a data set that's fraudulently made up doesn't look like a data set that was collected in real life and someone's going to notice. And um, it doesn't always happen. Uh, there's a case There's a case uh, in, in California right now of a researcher who's been accused of fraud who had put all his data online and you know, his collaborators noticed that something was wrong with it. And, 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 and uh, you know, it turns out a lot of these papers are, are being retracted now. So it doesn't, it's not like a panacea or anything, but it but it does reduce the chance. I think that you're going to want to put up a data set online that's that's fraudulent. Um, sharing your methods with other people. So uh, you know, if uh, th- one of the big problems we have with the scientific literature is not that it isn't replicable. That is, when other other labs come along and try and do the same experiment, they get a different result. It's that it isn't reproducible. Which is which is that. When people try and do the same experiment, they can't even begin because you didn't include enough information in your paper to for them to even try to do the same experiment again. And you often have these like long back and forth, uh, you know, chats with the you know email threads with the original authors of a paper saying, "Did you do it this way? What was the concentration of this? Did you do that?" You know, uh, 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 well, that's not how it should be. So sharing everything online, just being completely radically transparent. Um, and uh, you know, and, and as I you know was talking about earlier with respect to the journals, scientists can do this too. Is pre-register their predictions publicly, put up online. Here is what I think is going to happen in a, in a, in as detailed and exact a way as possible. When I run this particular analysis, I'm going to you know see this, and if it, if it's this, then I will say that my hypothesis is is correct. If it's if it's the other way, then I will I will say hands up, I, I got this one wrong. At the moment, what scientists do is. They kind of, when they collect a data set, they kind of explore it a little bit and it kind of goes along with their sort of pre-existing beliefs and they sort of, you know, they run an analysis and ah, it doesn't look quite, you know, quite, you know, what I was looking for. Maybe I'll try this instead. And they kind of try a bunch of things and then they write the paper up in the, in the eventual, you know, the, the, the end of it, they write the paper up as if they had predicted all this stuff from the start. 
Um, when of course they hadn't, right? But we, but that is basically what all scientists are doing: is that they are doing exploratory research, but writing it up as if it was confirmatory. Um, uh, and so what they can do is they can publicly post their predictions, and then you know before they've touched any data, and then go ahead and, and, and do that again. It's not going to completely stop fraudsters or anything because you can just lie and say I've not touched my data. But of course, at that point, it becomes fraud rather than just you know um, uh, uh, anything anything uh, sort of forgivable. So I um I think open science has you know and as I, as I said, it's much easier to do this stuff now. We now have you know repositories online for people to post their data. We have a whole community of people who are willing to help you with um you know how you should do particular analyses, discuss things with you. Um, we have all sorts of techniques to make your papers open to the world to make your research uh you know open to the scientific community before it touches a, a journal all sorts of stuff like that i think is um is enabled by you know advances in technology and what's holding us back is you know inertia right people don't want to do this stuff because it takes a bit more effort it take you know there for their whole career they've um published science in in a way that uh, that makes them you know that that gets them their gets them their their nice journal publications and keeps their jobs and so on but it's um it's not actually you know conducive to to high quality science whereas this stuff just puts everything out there and 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 you know what one more point is that it makes the reality of research uh uh more visible right i mentioned right at the start that what we see in the scientific literature is not a good uh, impression of what actually happened when people did when people did the research Research is really messy. Like it's very rare that you do an experiment or a study and you just find completely clear evidence for whatever hypothesis you're looking for. Sometimes there's things within a study that contradict other things, and part of the whole idea of open science and transparency and so on is is, is saying to people, "Look, this data set is not a pristine, beautiful, easy to understand story. It's kind of a mess, but that is how science is." And I think um, the problem, uh, you know, another one of the problems is that that we require scientists in some respect or we incentivize them certainly to come up with these beautiful pristine stories and that's just not how science really looks Stuart Ritchie is author of Science Fictions How Fraud, Bias, Negligence and Hype Undermine the Search for Truth and now a thank you to a Cato podcast sponsor Brian Solomon Thank you for your ongoing support of Cato's mission to advance individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.